Welcome to the HeartStrong Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Lindbergh. Like many of you, I'm living a life that I just did not expect. And over the years, I've come to value the idea of living HeartStrong, of growing through the challenges in my life, and let's face it, the challenges in our times. And I'm on a mission to help you do the same. So each week, I talk to thought leaders, authors, experts, and everyday amazing people who have something to teach us all about living fully amidst our struggles. I have learned so much from others along my journey, and so I hope that my guests will help you on yours. Let's get started. Today on the HeartStrong Podcast, I'm really excited to have a conversation with Rick Murr. You might notice, I want to let you know that I'm getting over a little cold, so you might hear that in my voice today, Um, but this is sure to be an amazing conversation. Rick and I um, met each other about five years ago. Our paths crossed because the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation, the organization that I started, was awarded Boston Marathon Charity Bibs, and I was looking for a coach for my team, and so I was connected with Rick, and the rest is history. He's been coaching our team for the last five years, and I've gotten to know him as an incredibly inspiring person that I know is going to inspire you today. So Rick has been a runner for 45 years and a coach for 26 years. He's coached more than 10,000 runners for the Boston Marathon. These runners have raised more than $65 million for Boston area charities. He was selected to participate in the 2004 Olympic torch relay because of his coaching and fundraising efforts. His impact is incredible. He has completed 32 marathons. Think about that, 32, and has a personal best time of two hours, 33 minutes, and 13 seconds, which is amazing. He's qualified for Boston in all 32 marathons and has been ranked fifth in the United States at the 100K mark, which is 62 miles, with a time of eight hours, 41 minutes, and 47 seconds, which, I mean, can you imagine running for all that time? He's also a military veteran, an endurance motorcyclist, and a cancer survivor. Rick lives in Massachusetts with his wife and his two children, and if he's not inspiring, I'm not sure what is. Welcome to the podcast, Rick. Oh, thank you very much. That was a great intro. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so excited that you're here. I feel like you have so much to share and talk about. Um, But I wanted to start the podcast talking about turning points in our life because I feel like you've had several of them. We all have them. There are really times when um, we can't unsee what we've seen or or it kind of divides our life right between before and after. I think people who have significant life experiences, I know I can say that we can mark our lives in that way. And they kind of take us on a course that maybe we just we just did not expect. And your story starts with your mom. So will you tell us about her and kind of how her story got you to where you are today? Yes, I would love to. In 1996, my mother was diagnosed with leukemia. Uh, it was July 10th. I was living in Massachusetts. My older sister called me. I really didn't even know what leukemia was, but I found out pretty quickly that it's a blood cancer. So I got on the first plane uh, from Boston to Minneapolis because she was in the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Um, Before I left though, I wanted to bring something symbolic to give to her uh, to wage this battle against leukemia. And it was a very easy and quick decision. Uh, I reached into my top dresser drawer and I pulled out my Boston Marathon finisher's medal, 
My mother was always a big supporter of my running. So I brought that with me. Uh, unfortunately, my mother um, only survived for three weeks after her diagnosis. Um, she passed the day before her 58th birthday, but not before I had one of those unique opportunities, a last conversation with a parent. And during that conversation, I promised her that I would do something significant with my life. And honestly, I didn't know what that meant at the time, but I certainly felt it in my heart. And so I gave the eulogy at her funeral. Then I flew back to Boston and I began grieving. Mm -hmm. And for me, grieving involved running. Yeah. And so I decided that I would run a marathon in her memory. And I wouldn't run this marathon for time. I would run it to reflect on my life with my mother. And serendipitously, I was standing in the starting corral and I looked over and there was a sign, literally a sign that said, the Leukemia Lymphoma Society of America team in training. Wow. And I saw those signs the entire 26.2 mile distance. And I was just so inspired to call them. So I called the executive director uh, the next day and told her my story. And so she said, you need to come in and speak with us. So long story short, uh, I became their head coach uh, for 12 years. Wow. And it was just one of the greatest periods of my life to be able to honor my mother, her life, her memory on that scale. Did you feel your mom's presence with you when you were running that marathon, that first marathon, and then when you were working um, as a coach for the Lymphoma Society? I did. Um, she seems to be with me a lot, uh, especially lately. Yeah. You know, the last four months have been the most challenging four months. Uh, you might hear a little weakness in my voice. I'm less than a week out um, from kidney surgery. I had a tumor uh, removed, but we can talk about that a little bit later on. But uh, I want to offer the same disclaimer as you from the outset. <laughs> if you detect a weakness in my voice, it's because I'm recovering from surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've been through so much and we definitely will get to that. But I'm curious if you can tell us how you, when you started running and when you realized you were so good at it. Well, I started running when I was a senior in high school. I went to a small school, small high school in West Virginia. Uh, they didn't even have a cross country team. Uh, but before I went to college, uh, I joined the Air Force. And so my Air Force recruiter encouraged me to run to get into shape. So every day after school, I would come home. And uh, at that time, running shoes didn't exist. It was mm -hmm. 1976. And I was wearing uh, leather Puma basketball shoes. Um, <laughs> and I would run by the moonlight. Um, there was a river in my hometown. And I would run along that. And I just discovered that I could run forever. And then when I got to boot camp, uh, we had competitions. And it was one of the first things that I really ever excelled at. And then I got to my first duty station, uh, Langley Air Force Base in Virginia, and I entered a few races. Um, and then from that point on, once I started racing, I just developed this love 
of running and racing, which I've had for 46 years now. It's like a natural gift that you were born with, right? I mean, don't you kind of think? Yes. Um, you know, my wife is a runner. Both of our children are runners. It just seems to be part of our genetics. Yeah, it's in um, your bones. Yeah. I love it. I've, you know, I've run 112 miles in one day. Uh, oh once gosh. I once I recover from my surgery, I'll begin training for a 100-mile race on the track here in Grafton. Wow. Wow, Rick. That is incredible. You know, you you shared a couple stories with me before before this conversation, and you, there's a theme with you about testing your limits. You clearly like yes. to test your limits, and I think it's more than a like of it. I think you believe in it, and you believe that it's important. Tell me about why testing our limits is valuable. Well, that's a great question. It's it's multifaceted. Uh, for me, testing my limits. Um, centers around the possibility of failure. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not afraid of that. Uh, I don't shy away from that. I don't live within my comfort zone. I live well beyond it. Um, I would much rather come up short uh, than just to be mediocre and live a normal life. So even when I was a little boy, I remember riding my bicycle out to the state park. It took me all day um, and I got home just before dark, stopped at the local grocery store and consumed an entire package of cookies because <laughs> I hadn't eaten all day. Um, then later I, I rode a boat uh, upstream on the river next to my house. Um, you know, no motor or anything. I just love spending the day testing myself. And that's still part of who I am. I, I think it just makes me feel more alive. Hmm. Um, plus, I'd love to have something to talk about if I ever make it to the nursing home. <laughs> but I, I think it's such a valuable thing. I was thinking about this before our conversation and how, you know, our culture in really the world that we live in wants every, make, to make everything easier. Like we've had this, you know, societally, we've created more and more conveniences for ourselves and we almost don't want to try something if we don't think we're going to be good at it, right? Because everything is so public. We're seen. And yet, if you really think about the people that we admire in the world, right, we admire these people who who reach a point of success. But if you, I always think about Olympians, right? I mean, we admire the gold medal stand, but think about the early mornings and the late nights and the missed things that, that all their friends were doing because they were on this quest to test themselves. And I just, I think it's such an important thing that I, as a parent, I think about that with my kids, how important it is to encourage them to do things that maybe they're not necessarily good at yet. Um, and that it's okay to fail. You know, I think that that's such a powerful statement that you made. Yes. Um, I mean, you've said so many things that resonate with me. Um, I think we're drawn to comfort and convenience. And I think that's unfortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, we want things to be quick and easy and comfortable. Um, and I think as a society in general, we've gotten very, very soft. Yeah. And I think the running community in particular, um, over my 26 years of coaching, I've seen this desire to, you know, finish the Boston Marathon just so that they can put it on Instagram mm. or say that they did it and they never run another day. 
Uh, as a coach, that breaks my heart because I love to instill the knowledge and values of becoming a lifelong runner. Mm-hmm. You know, and obviously that involves nutrition, hydration, sleep, so many other things. Um, and that's what I do when I coach. And so for the charity runners that I coach, um, many of them continue to run. Um, I'm coaching some of them privately after 12 years. Um, And and that's a measure that I use for myself in in terms of success. But getting back, you know, to testing, testing myself and uh, looking failure square in the eyes, uh, that's exciting to me. That's a that's a real motivator for me to know that there is a distinct possibility that I could come up short. Hmm. And I'm okay with that because I think we learn more from our setbacks, our disappointments, our failures, and of course the tragedy that we experience in life. Yeah. I, I, I echo that. And, and in some way, you know, sometimes I, I, I think I, I have the same thoughts and I, it makes me a little nervous to say it out loud, right? Because that's not what people are wanting in their life. Like we don't chase after failure. We don't chase after setbacks. But I do think that there is something about the human spirit that rises in those spaces that it would not rise in comfort, you know, the way that you said. And so I, I want to ask you about one other thing where you tested yourself. I, I read about your 12,000 mile motorcycle ride. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I did not know this about Rick. Um, that's crazy too. Like just give us a little sense of what that was for and why again, you found that so interesting to do. Yes. Well, I've had a lifelong passion for motorcycles. Um, I always wanted to ride my motorcycle across the country and after the bombings, of the 2013 Boston Marathon, I was reminded once again of how quickly life can be taken from us, mm-hmm. of how precious it is. And so I told my wife um, that I was going to ride my motorcycle um, out to Oregon. Uh, I ride BMW motorcycles, and there was a big rally of BMW motorcycles in Oregon. Uh, But like everything else I do in life, I didn't take the easy way. I didn't go directly from Boston to Oregon. I did some research and I discovered this very coveted accomplishment. It's called the Four Corners. And you're required to ride to the extreme four corners of the United States. And those four corners are Madawaska, Maine, Key West, Florida, San Ysidro, California, south of San Diego, uh, right near Tijuana, and then Blaine, Washington. Wow. And so they give you 30 days to do that. Um, I did it in seven days. Oh, my Um, gosh. The most compelling part of that was I rode my bike all the way across the country from Jacksonville, Florida to San Diego in 40 hours and 35 minutes. So I didn't sleep. I only stopped to refuel and I just went nonstop. So those are the types of endeavors that I revel in. I I love that. No one knew what I was doing. Uh, I didn't share what I was doing. Um, And even when I left Jacksonville, Florida, um, 
you know, the goal was to make it across the United States in less than 50 hours. Uh, in the endurance riding community, that's a benchmark. If you can, if you can make it across the United States in under 50 hours, then you've really earned your stripes. And so um, I made it in 40 hours and 35 minutes. So I was very proud of that. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. Wow. I, and I didn't even know like endurance <clears throat> motorcycling was a thing. So I learned something new. Yes. Um, so, you know, you say that you, you said this in, in communications that you and I have had, and then I think it was in an article that th- there's nothing more compelling than the human spirit when tested. Um, and your human spirit has been tested lately. Um you said that, you know, you realize that this human spirit is so incredible by watching other people's journeys. I mean, you coach people who are charity runners. So I just want to say real quick for those who don't know, oftentimes people will run the Boston Marathon for a charity because the Boston Marathon requires you to, to qualify. And, and and you have to be a pretty strong runner to qualify for Boston. Not everyone does, but they really want to run. So they'll run for a charity. And oftentimes it's something that's really a personal story that's maybe um, that's maybe part. So parents and we've had uh, medical providers and friends run for, for our foundation, people who are close to children with congenital heart disease. And it's a very personal journey and you coach people. So you get up close and personal with people on a personal journey where they are using running as often maybe healing or, um, you know, it, it, they're close to, to a cause. Um, so you've been up close and personal to that, but you've been watching that, but now you're on your own real personal journey. And I, I always say that like life prepares us for life. I have this, this belief and I've, I've seen it in my, I think we can connect the dots. And when I was preparing for this conversation, I was thinking, well, gosh, you have helped all these people on their healing quest and now you're going through your own. So tell us what's happened to you in the last four months and, and, and where you're at today. Well, I'm going to take a deep breath to answer yes. that question. <laughs> um, on October 3rd of 2021, I was riding my bicycle with a group of four others, including my wife. And it was a Sunday morning, a beautiful fall Sunday morning. And I was hit by a car. And my life changed significantly and abruptly. Um, Some of the injuries that I sustained were a collapsed lung, 10 broken ribs, four compression fractures on my spine, broken clavicle, uh, broken arm, broken humerus bones, uh, lots of cuts, abrasions, road rash. And fortunately, my wife did not see me get hit, but she was there within about 30 seconds. And my lung was collapsed and I was just fighting for my next breath. Uh, And I honestly wasn't sure uh, that I was going to make it. And so um, I was rushed to UMass Trauma Center and there were two surgeons waiting for me and took me in and I spent one week in the intensive care unit. Then I spent two weeks in the trauma center. Then I was transferred to Boston to Spalding Rehabilitation Center. 
I spent two weeks there. Then I began my recovery at home and I was still in full body braces, but I had this fighting spirit, this spirit of a marathoner. And I would walk uh, around town with braces. I had one brace on for eight weeks because of my shattered shoulder. And I got up to 18 miles for my long walk. It was the only thing that I could could do, uh, but I needed to move because I was essentially on my back for five consecutive weeks. And then my primary care physician insisted on a follow-up meeting, and I told her that I didn't think it was necessary, that I was feeling like I was recovering from my injuries, I was feeling strong, and she insisted that I come in. And when I went in to see her, she did some blood work, and she also pointed out something that concerned her from an MRI. And so um, there was a, a lesion on my right kidney. So I had an MRI, and then I had a biopsy. And on January 31st of this year, um, I was told that I have kidney cancer. And so um, last Wednesday, it will be a week tomorrow, uh, I went to Brigham and Women's Faulkner Hospital in Boston, and they removed the tumor and a portion of my kidney to clear the margins of the tumor. And when I was in uh, recovery, uh, my surgeon called my wife and told her that everything went well, that I'm now cancer-free, um, and that I no longer require any further treatment. Wow. And so, you know, it's been, it's been a challenging four months, but this is what I take from it, Jessica. And you know this better than I. When life as we know it is taken, we need to find the conviction to create a new life for ourselves. And I've seen you do that. And you have been a source of inspiration to me and to so many others after losing Ethan and creating the Ethan M. Lindbergh Foundation and making such a difference in the lives of others, especially those who are facing the same tragedy that you and your husband faced. So I am just in the midst of that. You know, I know that my life will never be the same. And someone asked me yesterday, how, how do you handle this with such positivity? And my answer was very quick. I, I simply said, yes, it's true that my life will never be the same. I don't know that I'll be able to ride a bicycle again. I don't know that I'll be able to get on a motorcycle again. Those are two of my greatest passions. I don't know that I'll ever be able to move the way I used to move again, but my life is still wonderful. Hmm. It's just going to be a different version. Um, So I wake up with a heart filled with promise, hope, and determination every day. And, you know, when you look death in the eye, um, it changes you. I used to always think I'm so grateful to be alive. But after what I've gone through in four months, I realize I am really, truly grateful to be alive. Uh, So every day is a great day. Um, 
every day is just one more day that I have an opportunity to chase my dreams, to maybe impact others, uh, to have a significant difference in the lives of others who might be facing similar challenges. I hope that my example can be a source of comfort, hope, strength, and inspiration to wage a relentless battle against whatever challenges they are facing. Yeah. And I, I, you are that, um, you know, we've been a, we've been a charity partner of the Boston Marathon for it's our fifth year. And the consistent thing that theme that comes from our runners is how much they love you and, and having you as the coach. And I just sense that, you know, you've been a running coach, but I, I sense that there's more for you, you know, as you kind of go on this journey and that you, life is, life has and is preparing you for life. And that um, having that heart of a marathoner, I love that statement because, you know, one of the things that I've learned in my life is that there isn't a destination. Like we think, I mean, you run a race, right? There is a finish line, but in life, it's always changing and it's always evolving. And if we get so hell bent on, the accomplishment or the destination, like we miss out on the journey. And so having a heart of a marathoner, I love that is really a like a beautiful idea of how we should be a human, you know, that we continue on. Um, so I, I, I love that. I think that, you know, you said something that um, you told me that your trauma surgeon said that they'd never seen someone stronger or more positive than you, which is not a surprise. Um and, and we've talked a little bit about this, but how important is a good attitude? I talk to my kids about this all the time, that it can, you know, wreck your day or make your day. Um, tell us about it, a, you know, how important a good attitude is and how people might shift their attitude if they're having a bad day or something's really getting them down. Yes, I, re I remember waking up one morning in the trauma center and there were two people at the foot of my bed who said, Good morning, Rick. We've been waiting over 20 minutes for you to wake up. <laughs> but we've been waiting over three weeks to come and visit you. Wow. And they introduced themselves as my trauma surgeons. It was a male and a female. And they said, we don't ever visit patients. But we felt compelled to come and visit you. Because we've never seen anyone come into the trauma center so broken yet so strong and so positive. Wow. And for me, as I said, my life changed. I looked down, I could see my body just broken and bleeding, and I knew I would never be the same again. And it felt like everything was broken in my body except one thing, my spirit. Hmm. And my spirit and my attitude are constant companions. They're best friends. Hmm. They go hand in hand. If you have a positive attitude, positive spirit, uh, you can conquer anything. And so I remember my nurse in the ICU telling me, well, you are, you are such a unique patient. Hmm. You never complain. You want to get off the narcotic painkillers. <laughs> <laughs> um, you want to get up and walk. You just have this just glow of hope about you. And it was the only thing I had control over, truly. 
And whether you've gone through something tragic or you're just living a great life, it's truly the one thing that we have total control over. Our attitude, our outlook, our disposition, how we treat others, we have total control over that. Now, I'm not saying that things don't happen that detract from that. They do. But I think resiliency is so important. When you have a setback, a disappointment, a failure, or a tragedy, it's okay to be upset. It's okay to be discouraged. But you need to have this fighting spirit, that heart and spirit of a marathoner, where you just rise up and you confront whatever the odds are for the, for the day and for the moment. And so everywhere that I was treated, I was blessed to be asked to come back and speak hmm. uh, to the staff about the power of positivity. I felt like these nurses, I'd never been hospitalized. I had no idea what nurses do. They're incredible. I do now. Yeah. I do now. And the doctors, the surgeons, the personal care assistants, the nurse practitioners, all of them. I don't care if it was the person coming in to empty the trash in my room. I wanted to show so much respect for what they were doing. They were saving my life. Mm -hmm. And I felt the best way that I could honor them would be to be positive. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way that I've always been. So it wasn't anything new to me. Uh, I just had to dial it up. <laughs> a little bit more. <laughs> a little bit more. Yeah. But it's, I it's, it's powerful. I think we can overcome anything with the right attitude. I, I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. I want You mentioned the word resilience, and I wanted to talk about that for a second. You made me think of something. You know, I've read a lot of different things about resilience. I think it's incredibly important. I think it's something that we can learn and we can grow in our life. But I think it comes from facing adversity and getting through it so you know the next time you can do it again and again and again. And I want to go back to what you said about being willing to fail. And I would argue that you're willingness to fail, fail up, if you will, to kind of keep pushing yourself, gave you and has given you the resilience to be where you are today. And so when we allow ourselves to be challenged and to be confronted and we challenge ourselves, we're really setting ourselves up for success in a way in life or whatever it brings to let us know like in our in my life you know my son Ethan is my oldest and we went through so much with him and I have a, my youngest son has muscular dystrophy and has tremendous challenges and they're different challenges but we know we can do it because we've already done it right because right. we challenge ourselves we said we are going to give this hell <laughs> you know we're going to give right. it all we got and so we know we can do it again even though we're a little older and a little more tired this time you know that we can do it and so I just want to kind of get that through line or bring that through line to people of the willingness to challenge ourselves and the willingness to fail really enables us to be resilient humans. Absolutely. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that, you know, when you overcome something and even when you fail, it still strengthens you. Yeah. And I feel like my resolve is stronger than it's ever been. My mm -hmm. resolve to live life with greater meaning and purpose has never been this strong. Wow. And it's because I felt like my life could end mm -hmm. and I've been given a second chance and I'm not going to drown in the quagmire of mediocrity and just go through life, just 
going through life. I want to leave a mark so that when I'm no longer here, even if it's just one person can say, he touched my life. Mm -hmm. That is something we should all aspire to. Yes. I believe it was Walt Whitman who once said, to know that just one life is breathed easier because you have lived is to have succeeded. And I believe that. I think there are endless opportunities for us to have a positive effect on other people. We just have to be looking for them. Yeah. And that's that's what I've been doing since since my accident. I've been looking for opportunities um, to help other people. Uh, I I really want to be more empathetic to people who are struggling because I think we get caught we get caught in this comfort of just going through life. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, there are people all around us uh, suffering. I want to be more sensitive to those people and extend myself more to them. But um, no, I I think what you just said is, is so true. These challenges that we face strengthen us. They prepare us. You know, I like what you said, life, prepares us for life. Uh, I'd never heard that before, but it really resonated with me because um, there have been so many blessings unexpectedly uh, from my accident. Certainly uh, discovering cancer, that was a huge blessing. Uh, My surgeon told me, Rick, you're in such good shape. If we did not find this tumor because of your accident, you could have lived with it for years. And by the time it was discovered, it would have been too late for you. Wow. Wow. That was a huge blessing. Huge blessing. To know how people feel about me was so humbling. I had no idea. Hmm. Um, And sometimes you have to go through something very tragic to realize how much people love you and care about you and will do anything for you. Um. And the, the list goes on and on. So even though I had this accident, if I could go back to October 2nd and avoid it, I'm not sure that I would. Yeah. Uh, it's helped me in so many ways. Um, and I think central to that, though, uh, Jessica has been my positivity, my attitude mm-hmm. about it. I've never had a bad feeling about the woman who hit me, who was 80 years old, turning into a church parking lot. For a Sunday service, she was only going 50 yards. And she told the police officer, oh, I saw him, but I thought he would stop and let me go. I've never had a bad feeling uh, toward her. I've never woken up one time in four months in the middle of the night, reliving that horrific accident. Never. it's you've somehow let it go almost the circumstances. I think that's really powerful because it, when we go through hard things, like I know I've done it, you replay it over and over again. And why did this happen? And what did I do? And how could I have made it differently? And it's a loop that I think we, I think people get stuck in. And I really do think it inhibits healing and growth. I've seen that a lot. It's very interesting to me how some people really get stuck there and others are able to move through that. I think that's a very, it's something that I'm curious about. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, that's really powerful, Rick, that you were able to do that. It's been very liberating 
for me uh, to realize these were circumstances. Um, it was an accident. There was no malice. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a choice. I can get angry, bitter, or I can get busy yeah. uh, recreating a new life uh, for me. And just like when I lost my mother to leukemia, that was a tragedy. Yes. And I easily could have gotten angry, bitter, uh, but I chose then, as I chose recently, to get busy. Yeah. Um, I remember my daughter, uh, I have a 15-year-old daughter who visited me visited me in the trauma center, and I was not in good shape, um, and I could tell it affected her. And I was so lucky not to have a traumatic brain injury or paralysis because I I was, I was going about 40 miles an hour when I collided with the car. And so there was a lot of trauma. And I said to my daughter, I said, Macy, remember this face and remember this body and stay close by my side hmm. because the comeback is so much more compelling than the setback. And you're going to see one of the most epic comebacks ever. And so that determination um, drives me. You know, I know that she is watching me. Um, and I, I want to be the best example of resilience and determination that I can be so that she sees later in life when I may not be here and she faces something that she'll look back to this and say, yes, my dad was a source of inspiration. I hope that's the case. Well, I can tell you that I think it's contagious just talking to you. I think you're doing that. And I, I, I agree with you that as a parent, sometimes we go through things and it's really easy to get bogged down in hard things, but our kids are watching. And that's such a good reminder that, yes. you know, to show them that someday that they can say, well, if they, if my parents could do it, I can do it. That That is, right. a, that's powerful. I want to ask you um, about, asking hard questions because I think enduring pain in our life makes us ask questions about who we are and what we believe and why we're here. And it really, I know for me personally has been an, I will say it's been an opportunity for me to kind of reconfigure some important beliefs in my own life. And I'm just wondering if this has, has jostled any of that in you, if you've and you don't even need to share exactly what the questions are if you're not comfortable, but have you, has this made you ask some different questions or, or search for some different ideas than you had before? Another great question. <laughs> um, I've done a really deep dive on who I am and my view of myself in this world and what I aspire to, uh, what I'm comfortable admitting, um, I think that, you know, with social media the way it is, uh, it blurs really reality in today's society. I'm very comfortable with who I am and my shortcomings, um, painfully aware of them, and I've gotten more comfortable with them. I love to talk about people or I love to talk to people about what I've discovered in this accident. You know, one of the things that I discovered was how much I love my wife. Hmm. You know, I think when you're raising a family, you sometimes get consumed by your children yeah, and you lose sight of one another. 
And this accident, in my opinion, has brought us closer together. And so now when I talk to young men who have just been married, uh, I always remind them to not lose sight of honoring their spouse. Um, And I look back now with clear vision on some of the mistakes that I made when my wife was staying home, raising our kids, and I was bringing in the money thinking, "That's that's all I needed to do. Meanwhile, she lost her identity. She stopped working outside the home. I didn't realize how hard it was to be at home raising two kids. I was totally blind to that. And and that will haunt me for the rest of my life. Um, but I've talked to my wife about it. I've apologized to my wife about that. But I've also talked to a a lot of younger men and even some of my older friends who will send me a text and it'll just say, honoring my wife today. Oh, I love that. Um, So I've gotten more comfortable uh, with, you know, my flaws, my blemishes. I mean, we, I mean, you gave me a great intro, um, you know, talking about all my running accomplishments and everything. That is part of who I am but it's less a part of who I am today. I'm more proud of uh, just being comfortable with my shortcomings Mm. and focusing on on those. Uh, I'll trade all those marathons uh, just for the ability to stand in front of a group and say, this is who I am Mm. and share my story. Um, And that's what I hope my future will be, that I'll have an opportunity to continue to impact others just in a different way now. That's beautiful. I think that's so interesting being, being aware of and comfortable with our shortcomings. And, you know, I think, and I I talk about this on this podcast a lot and what you said just made me think of about our identity and how so many times we get our identity tangled up in what we do or what we accomplish or even our illness, you know, parents in my community get very much their identity out of their child's illness but that's just part of who we are. I mean, that's just part of who we are. That's not all of who we are. And that's it right. seems to me the beautiful thing about your story that I'm observing is that you're becoming more a full expression of yourself, of Rick, of who you are. And that's gorgeous to be able to, you know, see and tangibly work on this full picture of who you are and who you want to be and what you want to give to the world. And and I think that is one of the gifts of suffering is that if we choose, again, I think it's always a choice, but if you choose, you can really find these hidden treasures in yourself, right? That you didn't know were there. I think that's really beautiful. Yeah, I think what you just said, I I I want to capture that when I listen to this podcast because through suffering uh, I've emerged um very different in many ways. Uh, to find happiness through suffering is not something that I would have expected, hmm. but I've well, I've discovered that. Yeah, I agree with you. I I always say something too. You you said if I could go back and choose my accident or not. I I always say this about my experiences that I would not, I wouldn't choose it, but I wouldn't trade it. You know, like, I like, like, that. like, you know, it's not like I would say, oh, I want to have unhealthy children or I want to face the death of my son or I want to do these things. 
But I would, my husband and I both say this, we would not be the people we are today. And we like the people that we are today. And we love the people that we know. And we wouldn't have any of that is the richness of our life. We would not have that. So I really would not trade it because I like who I am so much more having gone through the things that I've gone through. And I know there'll be more things. And I, but it is just this, I, I want people to see it as an opportunity. I mean, I, I know it maybe sounds crazy, but it is an opportunity, beautiful opportunity for growth. And you're doing that. You're embodying that. And that's what I think is so, so inspiring about you. Well, thank you. I I do think that situations like this almost have to be forced upon us for mm. us to realize there's beauty and tragedy. Yeah. Uh, beauty, hope, comfort, strength, inspiration, those are all things that I've I've realized more than ever in my life. Yeah. In the last four months. Yeah. I I that's beautiful. I I love watching and learning from you about what you're learning. I, I, that's one of the things I love about this podcast is just learning from other people's stories. It's just it's so it's so energizing to me. Um, so we're going to air this podcast right before the 126th Boston Marathon, which is on Monday, April 18th. You're going to have lots of runners that you've been coaching and that your team's been coaching running that day. And so there's going to be them, I hope, and a lot of other runners might listen to this podcast. So what's your message for the runners as they get ready for Marathon Monday? Well, I think running the marathon is a metaphor for life. You know, everyone is so focused, and you alluded to this earlier, about we're so focused on the destination, that we don't appreciate the journey. And that's one of the messages I try to convey to marathon runners, especially Boston marathon runners, to take time to see that little girl that might be sitting on her father's shoulders with her hand out or making eye contact with you, maybe dreaming of someday being just like you, Hmm. or the smell, the sound of a song, everything that the Boston Marathon offers. It's so easy just to think about taking a ride on Hereford, a left on Boylston, and getting to the finish line and being wrapped in that Mylar blanket and getting that Boston Marathon finisher's medal wrapped around your neck. Those are, those are important aspects to it. But the real beauty and power of it is the 26.2 miles from Hopkinton to Boston. And I would also say to the runners to take time during the marathon um, and reflect on their place in the world. You know, what motivates them? The beauty of the charity runners, and by the way, charity runners finish at a higher percentage than even the Kenyans, the Ethiopians, all the elite runners. Wow, I didn't know that. And people have always asked me, why that is. And I've always just promptly said, because of my coaching. (laughs) (laughs) But in all seriousness, it's because they're doing it for something other than themselves. And so they've had people, maybe some of these people are living paycheck to paycheck, but they believed enough in these runners to write them a check or to give their credit card, because that was the best way of showing how they believed in them. And I want the runners to think about those people because I learned through coaching that nothing in life 
that's significant is ever accomplished alone. Hmm. That's so true. You know, it could take a coach, a teacher, a janitor. Nothing significant is ever accomplished alone. And if the runners think about those people during the marathon who have supported them, who have inspired them, could be a teacher, a coach, a parent of a friend, um, they'll get to the finish line. And that's what life is all about. The Boston Marathon journey is just, it's just one step in life's journey. And so most of the runners are focused on getting to Boylston Street. But as their coach, I hope when they cross the finish line, that it's the first step in a much longer journey, a lifelong journey of believing they can make a huge and significant difference in the world and accomplish more than they've ever accomplished before because they just proved once again that they can do that. So that's what I would say to them. Yeah. And they've, they've spent all these months training. I mean, I think one of the hardest things about the Boston Marathon from the observation that I've had is that you're training through cold, you know, the cold winter. And some of the days are, are, there's been some rough weather days (laughs) of the marathon. And so just the fact that the, the people running, I mean, you've proven that you can, you've done it already. I mean, you've proven yourself through this. This is a day to, to relish in, the gifts of your journey and to um, enjoy it's it, and I think it's a day I always feel Rick at the day I cry every marathon I, I get tears in my eyes because I think it's the best of the human spirit I think it, it, is. Sh- it shows us you know the world is a mess <laughs> you know we're there's so much going on in the world that that feels so heavy right now but to watch people persevere through that I think is the absolute best part of the human spirit. I do too. It's It's been so wonderful for me to be part of the Boston Marathon with charity runners. Um, I've seen one runner uh, in general that I coached uh, was really in trouble at mile 15 one year. And my wife who was coaching with me came to me and said, Rick, you've got to help Linda. I don't think she can go on. And I looked and her lips were purple and she mm. was shaking. She was hypothermic. And I was getting ready to tell her that I didn't think that she should go on because the next 11 miles are the most challenging. Mm -hmm. And out of nowhere, this little girl came and put a blanket around her. And my runner, Linda, just lost it. She was almost convulsing. And I said, Linda, what, what is it? And she said, that is April Cardwell. That's the little girl that I'm running for today. Oh, my goodness. And she had her name on the back of her running shirt. Now, April now is in her 20s and healthy, but she had leukemia. That is the power of the human spirit. Because after that, Linda jumped up and completed the Boston Marathon. Wow. So... I've seen countless stories like that, and you're absolutely right, Jessica. The human spirit and the power and the beauty of it is on full display on Marathon Monday, and I've got a front row seat to it. And so uh, it's my favorite day of the year. I'm I'm like a proud teacher to see my students flying the colors of their respective charities uh, it's just a special day that's hard to put into words. It is. But I do want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to, first of all, be your coach 
for five years to support your runners who are supporting your such important mission. Uh, And also for giving me an opportunity today uh, to just talk about the last four months of my life. They've been life-changing. And now I feel I'm part of your community, someone who has faced tragedy and emerged with determination that's just relentless to live life with greater meaning and purpose. So thank you. Well, thank you. I like to ask one final question of all my guests. And um, we've talked about so many things today that that are incredible about your story and your spirit. But I'm wondering if you can leave us with a tool or a piece of advice that has served you best in becoming the person that you are today. Is there something that just resonates or that you think about often that um, just makes you who you are? I think for me, I live in what I call the spirit of continuous improvement, and that's steeped in self-assessment. And with that, you've got to be really introspective and you have to be really honest. Yes. Because it's so easy to paint a different picture of ourselves than what is really true. So I become very, very good friends with honesty. Hmm. Um, And so if I'm living in the spirit of continuous improvement, I'm always looking for areas where I need to focus on. And so I've got a few of those areas now that I've been working on, and it feels very, very good to be comfortable embracing them. Uh, It's like going to a gym and you see a bodybuilder and they've got a huge, beautiful upper body and these spindly little legs. Yeah. And that's what we need to do as people. We need to look at every part of who we are and our values and how we spend our time and how compassionate we are. And I do that. So every day I put my head on the pillow and I wonder how I did that day. And then I think about what I'm, what I'm going to do the following day. And I commit myself to doing that. And at the center of everything that I do is movement. So I go for a walk, I go for a run, and I'm introspective. And I'm just constantly living in the spirit of continuous improvement, knowing that I'm never going to be perfect. But on a scale of one to 10, if I can be a consistent seven, in all the areas that I'm focused on, that is something to aspire to. And the other side of the coin is when I fall from a seven to a two, that I don't become paralyzed with hopelessness because I fell from a seven to a two, but I start working back toward a seven right away. I may not go from a two to a seven, but I'll go from a two to a three to a four to a six and I'm back. And so That's been my methodology for just trying to continue to be a better person. That's beautiful. And I think it's a challenge for all of us listening. And so I just want to thank you, Rick, for your time today, for sharing your story and your heart with us and for inspiring all of us. This is, I mean, really, this is a conversation about how I define being heartstrong, being courageous and curious about your life so that you can grow through the challenges. And you are certainly heartstrong. So thank you. Well, thank you for saying that. That that moves my heart. So thank you. Thank you for joining me here on the HeartStrong Podcast. 
please rate and review this podcast and share an episode that you love with a friend. And when you do, it helps us continue our mission of encouraging people to grow through the challenges in their lives. This podcast is brought to you by the Ethan Lindbergh Foundation and the HeartStrong Collective. To learn more about our work, please visit theheartstrong.com. We'll see you back here next week for another episode of the HeartStrong Podcast.